Today we're tackling the seventh of the Ten Commandments. We're back to our study on the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 records ten words that God wrote down with his finger and then he rewrote the same commandments a second time after Moses had thrown them down and broken them. These are important words from God, God's top ten list. And this morning we're going to be tackling the seventh commandment, verse 14. But before we do, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our Bible study. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, for this new year and all of the opportunities that it holds. Lord, we're excited about your grace and your mercies toward us. And Lord, we're excited that you've chosen us, Lord, to be your children, to walk in, in your blessing, Lord, to experience your presence, and then to be used by you to share your love with the people around us. Father, we ask this morning that you help us to focus on what matters most, that you help us to turn our attention to that relationship in our lives that's so special to you and is certainly so special to us. Help us, Lord, to strengthen our marriages today, strengthen our commitments to our spouse Speak to us, Lord, in a very special way this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, God has been around the block a time or two. He has created life, and He knows how it should best function. The Ten Commandments are a picture of what matters most. Exodus 20 gives us foundational principles by which God wants us to live our lives. Here are ten non-negotiables. Ten values that should never be compromised. A holy and a happy life makes up its mind beforehand. It decides in advance where it's going to stand. And every life should be based on God's Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, teaches us to be pro-life. That human life is a gift from God. We need to respect the sanctity of life. While the seventh commandment follows in its footsteps, we should also honor the institution that propagates and cultivates human life. Let's guard and respect the sanctity of marriage. And thus, verse 14 tells us, you shall not commit adultery. This morning, I want to begin with a clip from an episode of Veggie Tales that's entitled, King George and the Ducky. As you'll be able to tell, it's based on the story of David and Bathsheba. And the video explains to kids how the king of Israel became bored with the war that his nation was fighting. He decided one day to sit out the battle, only to end up in a conflict that ruined his life. King George has been playing in the bathtub with his rubber duck. When he walks out on the balcony... And he sees something that he wants. And that's where we'll pick it up. Hey, what's that? Give me a quarter. Hey, 
The ducky. Oh. But you already have a ducky. What are you saying? That I shouldn't have whatever I want? Well... I must have it, I must get it, you must go and get it for me. If you want me to be happy, then you'll show me you adore me. Don't rest another minute till it's sitting here before me. If you want to do your best, I would suggest you go and bring me back that duck. But sir, if I could just jog your memory, you already have quite a few duckies. Those are yesterday's duckies. Huh? Well, these are all perfectly good duckies. Why, most of your loyal subjects would love to have even one ducky this nice. I don't like these, I don't need these, I don't want these any longer. My affection for those duckies isn't getting any stronger. To say I can't have what I want, you couldn't be more wronger. Don't ask me to explain, there will be pain if you don't go and get that duck. Our conversation is over. <laughs> I'm sure you noted that King George had a whole cupboard full of rubber ducks just like the one that he lusted after. But as he explained, those were yesterday's ducks. And what better way than a children's video to illustrate the innocent and often play playful and often subtle forces that lead to the sin of adultery. A chance encounter with an old friend. A late night at the office with a co-worker. A ride home from work, a chat by the water cooler with someone who seems to really care. You get sucked in. Adultery can even originate at church. Christians are not immune to this sin. It can start out as innocently as a man and a woman singing together on the worship team, or becoming prayer partners, or teaching the same Sunday school class together. Just a little boredom, just some pampering. Just an escape from the rigors and routine of daily life. Just a little self-indulgence. And suddenly you're looking at the spouse you once adored and the kids that you would have died for. And you're referring to them as yesterday's ducks. Author Florence Latour, she expresses it this way. No good Christian man or woman gets up in the morning, looks out the window and says, My, this is a lovely day. I guess I'll go out and commit adultery. Yet many do it anyway. I read where about half of the men and about a third of the women who cheat on their spouse admit that there's nothing really terribly wrong with their marriage. They're fairly content at home. And yet somehow they're driven by forces to violate their vow. Tom McGinnis, a professional counselor from New Jersey, he explains why adultery often occurs. He says, married people seek out or succumb to affairs when they feel devalued or less than fully alive. They're bored, overburdened. They want happy surprises. That might mean a sentimentally unexpected gift every once in a while. More important, they want a loving friend, a pal who isn't judgmental. They want someone to convince them that they're still lovable. For a little while, they want out from under the grown-up responsibilities that have become predictable and dreary. And difficult. Often the lure is not about something better as much as it is just something different and easy and scratches an itch. I've heard adultery described as love for the lazy. 
in the video clip you saw, there was no difference between the neighbor's duck and the duck that King George desired and the scores of ducks that he already had in his cabinet. But it was easier to switch ducks than to recreate interest and thrill and enthusiasm for the one he possessed. And the same is true in marriage. It seems easier at times to find a new spouse than it does to make happiness happen with the one we've got. It's like the farmer's choice. He can till and water and weed his fields, then wait for the harvest. Or he can opt out of the labor and sweat and just go to the grocery store and buy some canned vegetables. Obviously, nothing is as tasty and healthy for you as fresh vegetables. And a diligent farmer, he can become a rich man, but buying vegetables off the shelf without working for them is, at least for the time being, less bothersome and less tiresome. You see, this is the appeal of adultery. It's a quick fix. It's convenience without commitment. It's flirtation without dedication. With yesterday's duck, you don't have to work on all that happened yesterday. But with a new duck, you can fake it. At least for a while. Once there was a movie star, leading man type, who was being interviewed by a late night talk show host. And the host asked him, what makes for a good lover? This interviewer was trying to bait the actor for some juicy, juicy description of his sexual escapades. But this is how the man answered. He said, a great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life long. And who can be satisfied by one woman all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman to woman. Any dog can do that. It reminds me of a comment, comment made by Roger Staubach, the all-star quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. At the time, Staubach and Joe Namath were the premier quarterbacks. And it was one night, Phyllis George, she asked Staubach the question. She said, Roger, how do you feel when you compare yourself with Joe Namath? who is so sexually active and is a different woman on his arm every time we see him. And I love Roger Staubach's reply. He commented, Phyllis, I'm sure I'm just as sexually active as Joe. The difference is that all of mine is with one woman. <laughs> Guys and gals, if you want to score a touchdown in God's game plan, reserve your sexuality for your spouse. If you're single, keep yourself for your future mate. If you're married, only have sex with your present mate. Don't commit adultery. Once there was a Sunday school teacher who asked her class of second graders to explain what was meant by the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And that's when one little boy responded, It means you can't chop down an adult tree. <laughs> that's actually not a bad answer. Imagine walking through a downtown park in a major city and admiring the old stately oak trees that line the street. These trees are the city's heritage. They're historical landmarks. They're civic treasures. But what if suddenly you pulled out a chainsaw and you started chopping down one of these trees? It would cause an uproar, wouldn't it? Citizens would do all that they could to stop you from destroying one of their beloved trees. Hey, whenever someone commits adultery, we should react the same way. For marriage is a societal treasure. It's a moral landmark. It is a part of our spiritual heritage. Marriage is the central thread that holds together the fabric of civilization. 
It's the incubator of humanity. Marriage brings stability to people and families. And for the sake of future generations, it should be preserved at all costs. Adultery is the chainsaw. But that reminds me of another Sunday school teacher who was reciting to his class the Ten Commandments. And as soon as he'd finished, one of the kids, <laughs> he asked about this Seventh Commandment. He said, teacher, what does it mean to commit agriculture? <laughs> the little guy had gotten his words confused. Agriculture, that's not what it said. But he still got the right answer. Because while the teacher was laughing, another child in the class raised his hand and he said, committing agriculture means that you shouldn't plow in another man's field. <laughs> hey, that's the correct definition for committing agriculture and for committing adultery. In both cases, you shouldn't plow in another man's field. The sin of adultery occurs when a person engages in sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. When you decide you'd rather plow in someone else's field rather than your own. Hey, even if two unmarried people have sex, it still violates their future spouse. In a sense, it's adultery in advance. You're still guilty of plowing in another man's field. And he or she will have to deal with the damage that you've done. If you have any doubts about the seriousness of God's attitude toward adultery, take note of the punishment that God prescribed for adultery in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22 tells us, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil person from Israel. Obviously, for the sake of his chosen people, God planted a high hedge around the sanctity of sex and marriage. He wanted to preserve the family and protect the nation from moral collapse. In ancient Israel, the punishment for adultery was carried out by stoning. According to the Jewish Mishnah, the adulterer was placed knee-deep in a box of manure. Perhaps that's where the old expression came, knee-deep in trouble. Once the person was put in the mire, the victim was then pelted with stones until their face slumped over into the slime. After the execution, a tree was planted in the box of manure to stand in the city as a testimony to the seriousness of adultery. A town with a lot of trees was considered a shady place in more ways than one. This morning, I want to organize my thoughts about adultery in three ways. First, I want us to look at its lineage or its progression, the descent downward that leads a person into adultery. Second, I want to survey the damage that it causes, and that should scare us all. And finally, I want to talk about the salvage. Is it possible to salvage an adulterer? Is it possible to salvage a marriage that's been injured by adultery? This morning we're going to look at the lineage and the damage and the salvage of adultery. First, let's talk about its lineage or its progression. And let me give you five words up front, five stages that seems to occur. First, there's attraction, followed by distraction. Followed by a lot of traction. And then there's action. And then sadly there's subtraction. 
Adultery begins, you see, with an innocent attraction. Wow, that's a beautiful woman. Oh, he's such a friendly fellow. And there's nothing really wrong with noticing a person's features or their friendliness, just as long as we quickly move beyond those thoughts. Eugene Peterson writes about this kind of attraction. He says, there is nothing wrong with happening to see a beautiful woman. Nothing wrong with an involuntary rapid pulse beat, a surge of red-blooded manhood, an inner whisper, wow. But now the struggle begins with your fantasies, your flesh, your faith, your future. It's not the first look that gets us into trouble. It's what comes afterwards. It's the lingering. It's the lust. It's the desire. Ultimately, it's the rationalizations and the justifications. Reminds me of the two monks that were standing by the river. They were approached by a gorgeous young woman who needed to cross the stream. One of the monks picked her up, threw her over his shoulder, carried her across the stream, and then set her down on the other bank. She appreciated his efforts. But his companion, who saw this all, was bothered and agitated. And later that night, he complained to the first monk. He said, look, buddy, he says, as monks, we've both taken vows never to look at a woman, let alone touch her body. And at that river today, you did both. Well, that's when the first monk sort of put it back in perspective. He said, my brother, I put that woman down on the other side of the river. You've still been carrying her in your mind. <laughs> hey, the second monk had allowed his attraction to turn into a distraction. You see, this is the second step. If I fail to discipline my thoughts and allow myself to focus on a woman other than my wife, that's when the fantasy starts. That's when I begin to wonder, what, what is she really like? What would it be like to be with her? And suddenly, I've crossed that line in my mind. This is no longer an innocent look. This has become a sinful distraction. And this is what Jesus warned us about in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 tells us, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When you look to lust, you've committed heart adultery. Obviously, the seed of the sin is not as far-reaching and as destructive as the deed. But in a spiritual sense, the seed is just as loaded with evil as the deed. Jesus is clear. It's not the look that defiles us, but the look to lust. According to Jesus, adultery begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. And here's what happens next. The sinful distraction starts to gain traction. You start looking for opportunities to be with this person. Your trip to the copy room starts to include a stop by the water cooler that's right next to his office. Are you just so happened to pick her son to be on your baseball team in hopes of seeing more of her. You begin to look for times when the two of you can get together and talk on the phone or perhaps pass notes. Flirtatious communications begin to occur. Nothing physical transpires, not yet. But the relationship definitely begins to gain traction. Proverbs 7, you might want to turn there gives to us the picture of a man who experienced this kind of traction. The writer, he remembers it all. He saw it from his window. He says, For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, 
and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Now here's the man's first mistake. Rather than remove himself from the source of the temptation, he flirts with danger. He makes a point to pass by her house. It says in there, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. And with an impudent face or a shameless attitude, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me today. I have paid my vows. In other words, hey, I love God. I went to church today and offered a sacrifice. I even prayed about our relationship. I asked that if it was God's will for you to walk by my house tonight. And look, you're right here. How can God be against two people who are in love? Hey, this kind of traction often tries to provide religious justification for the sin. Well, she continues, I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestries, colored coverings of Egypt, Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, an indication that he's going to be gone for a while. And will come home in an appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her, catch this, as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till an arrow struck his liver. Hey, he failed to stop the traction that was pulling him in. Guys, if you feel this same pull, if you too are flirting with danger this morning, cease and desist immediately. Don't just walk away. Run from your, for your life. Get another job if necessary. Move your family to another neighborhood. You overcome traction with a lot of retraction. in the contact immediately. And if you don't, hear the ominous words that follow. The writer of Proverbs adds, As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Understand, innocent attraction leads to sinful distraction. But then that begins to gain traction and momentum, which culminates in action. A late night at the office, a hotel rendezvous, an out-of-town trip together, and then the lies start, and the duplicity begins, and the cover-up, and the guilt. And ultimately, that action causes subtraction. For there are no exceptions. A price gets paid. Here we're told of the man, he did not know it would cost his life. And that's when the writer of Proverbs draws his conclusion. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. 
Even a man who's careful and who's strong, play, who plays with fire long enough, will eventually get burned. There are no exceptions. Play with fire long enough and you're going to get burned. Entertain the distraction. Ignore the traction and you will experience some subtraction. There will be hell to pay. And I'm not so much talking about eternal damnation. God can forgive an adulterer, but there will be hell to pay on earth. The writer of Proverbs 7 closes the chapter by saying, Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. This is where the adultery finally ends up. The chambers of death. Literally, he's referring to the torture chamber. Boy, it started out as something called an affair. The word affair sounds light and easy and entertaining and even enjoyable. It's a laissez affair. But in the end, it's the way to hell. It ends up in the torture chamber. If only King George had read about King David. Bathsheba was bathing on the rooftop and he just had to have her. She got pregnant. And led to her husband's murder and a prolonged cover-up. And finally, the prophet exposed David. His son was killed as a judgment from God. But that was just the beginning of the trouble that David's adultery unleashed in his life. His kids failed to respect him. One son raped a sister. Another killed the rapist. Still another tried to take over the kingdom. And even had sex on the rooftop with David's wives. Hey, this past week, a tsunami off the coast of Indonesia ravaged the shorelines of 11 countries, killing over 100,000 people. Well, adultery is relational tsunami. When the wave crashes, it devastates families and friendships. There is hell to pay. David sowed to the wind, and he unleashed a whirlwind that resulted in massive ruin in his life. You know, it's amazing to me how naive this world is toward adultery. What a naive posture it takes. As if it's no big deal. In 1999, there was a book that was published entitled Affair. How to manage every aspect of your extramarital relationship with passion, discretion, and dignity. Here's the publisher's review of that book. A thoughtful, detailed discussion of every aspect of considering Preparing for, beginning, and conducting a successful and fulfilling extramarital affair. Trust me, that author has never sat in my counseling sessions where adultery was involved. Any fulfillment, trust me, is short-lived. I have seen nothing come from adultery but pain and wounds and scars. Make no mistake about it, like a hurricane, like a tornado, like a tsunami, adultery causes damage and carnage. And it does so in at least five ways. First, it destroys your soul. Second, it steals your wealth. Third, it risks your health. Fourth, it breaks your trust. And fifth, it shames your God. I want you to notice first that adultery destroys your soul. Again, here in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, we're told, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. And catch this, he who does so destroys his own soul. Here is where the world miscalculates. 
Since dogs and swine and deer and other animals show no need for monogamous relationships, why should we? All we are is another animal, but that's where they're wrong. That's not true. God has made human beings higher than the animals. We're more than bodily processes and electrical impulses. We're body and soul. Humans possess a spiritual component that animals lack. And our sexuality is the physical act that most reveals our spiritual nature. Sex carries with it tremendous spiritual overtones. The sexual side of a person is the most intimate aspect of their identity. And when you give that away to someone else without receiving a lifetime commitment in return, it cheapens who you are. It robs you of your honor and your dignity and your self-esteem. You see, sex outside of marriage is like peeling an onion. Every time you engage in illicit sex, you peel off another layer of skin. And then you just keep peeling and peeling and nothing gets added to replenish what's been taken. And eventually, you end up as nothing. All that's left is tears. Look in the eyes of a promiscuous person, and you'll see that nobody's home. They're like a pumpkin turned into a jack-o'-lantern. Oh, their face wears a cut-out smile, but on the inside, they've been gutted of joy and dignity and respect. Adultery destroys your soul. It robs you of your humanness and reduces you to a mere animal. Yes, adultery destroys your soul, but it also steals your wealth. Again, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 10 warns us, Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Chapter 6, verse 31 puts it, He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Obviously, those passages refers to a costly divorce settlement. Or maybe alimony payments. But they also refer to our spiritual wealth as well. Understand that all cultures across the planet, in every culture, human beings always cover up their sexual organs. From girdles to loincloths, sexuality involves secrecy and privacy and intimacy and mystery. And if you take away the privacy you will destroy the intimacy and the ecstasy. When you commit adultery, you bring a stranger into your marriage bed. Even if your spouse forgives you, even if they let you come back, even if they agree to stay in the marriage, whenever you have sex, your spouse will always be wondering about that affair. Did he whisper to her the same things that he's whispering to me now? What did they talk about? How do I measure up to her? And on and on it goes. Adultery invites a stranger to bed. It allows a foreigner to rob you of the riches of intimacy and ecstasy that you could have enjoyed. This is also true for the singles in the crowd this morning. The devil wants you to sleep around. He wants you to steep your mind with pornographer, pornography. Because he knows that he's sowing the seeds that in the future can destroy your marriage after the wedding. You think, oh, I'm a single guy. How can my conduct today affect my marriage in the future? Trust me, it can. Comparison is a killer. How can a spouse really open up and give themselves away uninhibitedly, uninhibitedly if they think that they're competing with previous partners, that they're being measured? That's a heavy baggage that can bog down a marriage. 
Pornography also creates problems. Pornography is sheer fantasy. And no wife can live up to the make-believe world of pornography. Satan loves to get a man to indulge in fantasy. For once that happens, the man is never satisfied with the real thing. His wife never measures up. And when she senses his dissatisfaction, it stifles her expression. Single people cheating on your future spouse now can also cause great damage. I read a letter that was written to Ann Landers from a man in Pennsylvania who's just now starting to wake up to the subtraction, to the loss that has occurred in his life through adultery. He says, Ten years ago, I left my wife and four teenagers to marry my secretary with whom I'd been having an affair. But lately, I'm beginning to see things in a different light. It hit me when I was a guest at our eldest son's wedding. For that's all I was, a guest. I'm no longer considered part of the family. My first wife remarried and her husband has been taken inside the circle that was once ours. They gave the rehearsal dinner and sat next to my two sons and their sweethearts. I was proud to have a young, pretty wife at my side, but it didn't make up from the pain when I realized that my children no longer love me. They treat me with courtesy, but there is no real affection or no real caring. I miss my sons, especially around the holidays. I'm going to try to build some bridges, but the prospects don't look very promising. It'll be difficult re-entering now that they have a stepdad they like. I'm writing in the hopes that others will consider the ramifications before they jump. And then he signs it. Here's a guy who wished back he, wished he had back yesterday's duck. Guys, adultery is a thief. It lures you in and then it steals you blind. And it also risks your health. I'm sure I don't need to mention the 38 major sexually transmitted diseases that have now invaded our society. I heard a startling statistic the other day. Among Americans under the age of 40, one out of every three people suffer from an STD. And this is why Proverbs 5 verse 11 lists disease as an aftermath of adultery. There he says, And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And the fourth byproduct of adultery is that it breaks your trust. Know that God created sex for three reasons. Procreation, or having babies. Recreation, or having fun. It's pleasurable. But perhaps the most important reason for sexual relationship is for unification. Or for creating between a husband and a wife a oneness and a togetherness. You see, sex unifies unifies a man and a woman, not just physically and emotionally, but spiritually as well. When God created the first man and woman, He commanded, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice the euphemism that God chose for sexual intercourse was one flesh. Sexual relations in the context of a loving and caring and committed relationship unifies a couple. It brings them close. It holds them together. Sex is the cement that binds a marriage and strengthens the unity. Call it the super glue of marriage. And this is why sex outside of marriage does such damage and causes such carnage. Here, here's a great quote. Since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out at the wrong time 
or in the wrong place always creates an awful mess. The wrong things get joined together and getting them unstuck tears at the soul. That's why adultery is forbidden. Adultery creates confusion. It creates unintended and later unwanted bonds. And the new connection that it forms tears apart the old bond that existed. This is why the Old Testament penalty for adultery was so severe. Adultery was seen as a violent act. It rips apart a union that's been forged by God. If marriage makes a husband and a wife one flesh, then adultery severs and tears that flesh. You know, when I officiate a wedding, I always say to the groom, Young man, nobody expects you to be perfect, but we all expect you to be faithful. And then I turn to the woman and I tell her the same thing. You see, marriage is a record of relationships that's meant to be played at high fidelity. This trust between a husband and a wife, this vow, this commitment that they make is what holds that marriage together now and forever. And often couples don't realize how important that trust in the relationship is until it's gone. You see, that's what happens with adultery. It empties the trust out of the marriage. And once that trust is depleted, it is very difficult to ever ever gather it back up and accumulate it back together to get it back into the marriage. Take this pitcher of water. What if I were to take this pitcher of water and if I were to walk over here like this, if I were to just pour it out, How successful do you think it would be for Charles to come down and collect it? How much of that water do you think Charles could get back up and get back into that, into that uh, pitcher? Not much, could he? And that's what happens with adultery. You pour out your trust. You throw it on the ground. And it is very, very difficult to either gain that back up and gather that back up and get it back into that pitcher. It's a difficult, if not impossible, task. Even after a lot of hard work, you might be able to gather up a little of the water, but it'll never be as it was before. The trust is on the ground. It's been wasted, and it takes a colossal effort to rebuild that trust. You see, adultery breaks your trust, but it also shames your God. And I believe the best deterrent to adultery is to grasp the spiritual connotations of sex and marriage. You'll treat your spouse differently when you realize how God sees marriage. Hey, to commit adultery is to bring shame to God's name. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with His church. That Jesus is a faithful husband and that we should be like committed brides. And when you break your marriage vow, you distort the sacred picture that God has painted. Just as murder mars the image of God in man, adultery mars the image of Christ in His church in the marriage relationship. It ruins a masterpiece. This morning I brought with me my Vincent Van Gogh. This is uh, my Vincent Van Gogh original. It's called Starry Night. Isn't it a beautiful painting? 
We keep this out in the garage. We hang it up right over the ping pong table. <laughs> but what if, what if one day Nick and I were playing ping pong and suddenly Nick miscalculated the score, said that he was winning, which never happens. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm standing there with my ping pong table and, and Nick says that, He's winning, and, and I get angry, and I, and I really get upset, and I, and I start to get mad, and, and then he doesn't, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm beating you, I, and he miscalculates the story, and he sticks with his story, and, and I get angry, and finally I just, and I just get angry, and I just destroy my Vincent Van Gogh. Can you imagine? What if you saw that? You'd be sitting there and you'd say, boy, Pastor Sandy, you, you've, you're acting a little rash here, buddy. You, you need to get control of yourself here. There, you've got a problem here, Pastor Sandy. This is, not, uh, this is not really a good idea. You've just made a costly mistake. And you see, this is what God thinks of us. When he looks down from heaven and he sees people destroy his masterpiece, when he sees people cheat on their spouse and break their vows and give it no thought. And he sits there and he thinks, don't you realize that you've just ruined a beautiful masterpiece that I'm trying to paint, a picture, a portrait that I'm trying to paint to the world of how Christ loves the church and how the church loves Christ. It shames our God. With the time I have left this morning... I want us also to discuss a few ways to salvage this situation. To salvage an adulterer, but also to salvage a marriage that's been ravished by the sin of adultery. And here's where I can offer you the most hope. John chapter 8 describes early in the morning in the temple. Jesus was confronted with an angry mob. And out of a pack of self-righteous and judgmental Jews, a near-naked woman was thrown down right at his feet. She was an adulteress. In fact, she had been caught in the very act. And Jesus was reminded by the crowd that the law of Moses said to stone her. But what did Jesus say? It's interesting. Verse 6 of chapter, John chapter 8 tells us that Jesus stooped down. And with his finger, he started to doodle in the dirt. He started to write something down in the dust with his finger. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. But we know that he wrote something with his finger. And he wrote another very important document with his finger. The Ten Commandments were written by that very same finger. You know, it's comforting to me that at Mount Sinai, the finger that wrote on a stone tablet, you shall not commit adultery, also wrote in the dirt to set an adulteress free. You remember the rest of the story. Jesus challenged those Jewish leaders that day. He who is without sin among you, cast the first stone. Jesus was the only one in the crowd that day qualified to cast a stone, but he chose not to. And after the angry men with their guilty consciences had all walked away, Jesus said to the adulteress, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Hey, salvaging an adulterer begins right here. You need to come to Jesus. 
You need to confess your sin. You need to ask Him to forgive you. And He promises that He will. If you're guilty of sexual sin, and who isn't this morning? For don't the words of Jesus convict, you, convict us all? Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. If you're guilty, and we all are, we need to confess it to Jesus. Jesus is the only person qualified to condemn us, and yet he's chosen not to. He wants to forgive. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But note what else he says. These words are also needed to salvage a sinner. Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. For repentance is also needed. Jesus challenges this woman to follow him, to walk in a new way. Perhaps that involved returning to her husband and asking for his forgiveness too and doing the hard work that it would take to try to rebuild that trust. Perhaps it meant learning a new perspective on sex. Thinking about the impact that sexual purity today might have on a potential marriage tomorrow. Either way, Jesus' words to her were the same. Make a new start. Walk a different way. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones once said about adultery. He says, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin. But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. But then Lloyd-Jones adds, but hear the words, go and sin no more. We all desire to hear those words, neither do I condemn you. But are we just as receptive to the words, go and sin no more, change our attitude? If we are, we'll erect boundaries in our lives that will guard ourselves against improper relationships with the opposite sex, that will guard against infidelity. We'll be smart and avoid situations where temptation can assert itself. We'll be careful about what we watch and what we read and where we surf and with whom we hang out and chat and converse. And we'll nurture strong marital commitments. We won't take chances. We won't drop our guard. We won't give the enemy an opportunity. And if we have offended our spouse in some way in the past, if we've given them a reason to doubt our faithfulness to them, will do whatever it takes to their satisfaction to restore that trust. The world that we live in today is anti-marriage. When Hollywood portrays a couple on the silver screen, it's far more likely that there'll be an unmarried couple living together than a husband and a wife. In fact, marriage often gets ridiculed. This is why we need to make our marriage a high-priority item. Keeping the seventh commandment requires a proactive response. You see, we all have the tendency to treat the people we love as yesterday's ducks. We can take our spouse for granted. We can view our family obligations as a bother. Every married person here today 
should take this opportunity on the first Sunday of 2005 to rededicate yourself to the good work of building a strong marriage. Renew your vows in your heart. Resolve to make your marriage the best it can be. The old adage is true. The best defense is a good offense. And the surest way to avoid the boredom and the humdrum that brings about an affair is to create a thrilling and a fulfilling marriage. Hey, since fidelity in marriage matters to God, let's all make guarding our marriage a non-negotiable in this coming new year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, for the very special love that exists between a husband and a wife. And Father, it's amazing how after being married for a while, we, can, we tend to rewrite history. We tend to forget just how much we loved our spouse, just how committed we were, just how sure we were of success, how dedicated we were at one time in the past. And yet, water washes under the bridge and time goes by and entropy sets in and deterioration happens and suddenly we find ourselves sort of sitting on the fence, teetering, tottering. Father, help us to realize the dangerous place we might be at today and help us, Lord, to remember the vow that we've taken to our spouse and to our God and help us to do all that's necessary to fortify and strengthen our marriage and take seriously the commitment that we've made. Help us, Lord, to value our marriage, to not commit adultery, to remain pure and faithful to our spouse. Lord, help us to make this a non-negotiable in our lives, to not even flirt with this danger, to not even entertain these thoughts. Help us, Lord. Take the seventh commandment seriously. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this day and for the marriages that are here this morning. We pray that you'll strengthen them. We pray that this new year will be a great year for this church and for your people. And we pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.